The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we'll be looking at the topic of miracles. And as I mentioned before, I don't think we'll be doing any miracles tonight. Uh, getting through this outline might be considered a miracle. Um, but uh, we'll see how far we get tonight and uh, see what we can learn. Let's begin with some prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we have to study tonight. And we ask, Lord, in a mighty way that you would be here opening our hearts and our minds, uh, focusing us now that we might think about your word and consider what you would have to say. Father, I pray that we would... Uh, be moved to wonder and awe as we consider the miracles you've done in the past and the signs and wonders that give great evidence of your sovereign power and your majesty. I pray that in some way, uh, certainly less than was uh, occurring at the time of the miracle, Lord, but in some way our hearts would be moved to worship you and be in amazement at who you are. Be with us, O Lord, tonight. Help us to realize again that there is nothing that you cannot do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at miracles, and uh, with systematic theology, theologians are always needing to be very, very careful at how they use words. Definitions mean everything. <coughs> Somebody says, you know, do you believe in such and such? I'm going to want to ask them, what do you mean by that? It's just my careful nature, uh, because words have meanings, and what some people think a word means or a concept means it actually may be different than the way I use that phrase or that expression. So we're uh, learning to be very careful about our words and to communicate. And so in the chapter on miracles in Grudem's book, uh, he begins with a definition, and I don't like his definition. I have to be honest with you. So I actually go on for pages here working on a good definition of miracles, and I don't really know how to end up. Have you ever heard somebody talk about the miracle of birth, you know, when a baby's born? I was never comfortable with that. Do you think of the birth of a baby as a miracle? You think so? Okay, well, that settles it. Brevard thinks it's a miracle, so that's fine. Uh, why, Brian, why, why do you think the birth of a baby is a miracle? <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot. You know something? I don't. I don't dispute that at all. Um, and if you look at um, you know a miracle, if you actually turn a few pages over, um, or actually one page on page two there, this guy Cressy in his new Bible dictionary says there are three key aspects: wonder, power, and significance. Um, but I said after that, however, he notes that all three of these are also ascribed to God's natural providence. People wonder at the world that God has made and sustains by His power, and they find significance in natural events. So we're kind of stuck. You look at the birth of a baby and you realize all the things biologically that are involved there, including the genetic code and, and makeup and the uniqueness of each child. And it'd be hard not to, you know, kind of slide into thinking it's a miracle. But I resist it because it's so commonplace and so natural. Um, I, I think in, if I defined it in one way, I would say that I personally have never seen a miracle, you know, in one sense, uh, of the type that are recorded in the scripture. You know what I'm talking about. Those kinds of events that everybody saw and were immediately struck with awe and wonder and had a sense of the immediate presence of God. Something like walking through the Red Sea with a wall of water on the left and right. I wonder what that looked like. If it was like an aquarium, you know, they, they could see the fish. I don't know. I mean, I, I've thought about that. And of course, the liberals say that that, that didn't happen. It was really the, a bad translation. It's the Sea of Reeds and really was a swamp which I find an even greater miracle that God could kill a whole army with a swamp. I mean, that's, I mean, if that's what you're going to do, you still end up with a miracle. It's just a different miracle. Why were they all laying face down in a puddle of water and they wouldn't get up? I mean, whatever. But uh, they ended up perishing in the swamp. So I'd rather just read it the way it's written and say there was a wall of water on the left and right and then it kind of crashed down on the army and they perished. They sank like a stone to the depths. That's what the poetry says and I think they're... So all I'm saying is that there are these signs, these wonders, these miracles, a sense of, of a wonder and awe and amazement. So let's see what we can do to come at a, a definition of miracle. 
um, and not in any way minimizing the birth of a baby or any one of a number of other natural things that we see all the time that do cause us wonder. And it's exactly for that reason, having just gone through a, a careful study on providence, that uh, Grudem wrestles so hard with the definition of miracle. Because the fact of the matter is, if we're not going to be deists who believe that God created the universe with certain mechanical laws and then just stays out of it, except when he does a miracle and interferes and kind of messes it up and then steps back out again, well, that's not the biblical view. God is constantly involved in, in providence. And we just saw that. We, we went three weeks into the doctrine of providence. Come on in. Come on in. There's one chair left here, I'd see. I don't know. Um, you can get some. Yeah, there's plenty of chairs in the other room. You just need to slide them over. So, Doug, why don't you... I mean, there's some in the other room if you want to just slide them in. That'd be fine. There's plenty of floor space over here. While I'm thinking about it, right after uh, we're, we get done tonight, uh, if you're interested in helping with our outreach to visitors, uh, just meet down, meet Josh Smith down in the parlor, and names will be given out, and you can go visit them sometime this week. So, I just want to say that while it's on my mind. All right, I'm going to continue. Uh, the struggle that Grudem has is with a proper understanding of providence coupled with a desire to set a miracle apart as something unique. And it's, it's, it's wrestling with that that causes us to have a hard time defining it. How does, how does Grudem then define a miracle? A miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe, wonder, and bears witness to himself. Doesn't that seem weak? Less common? As I said, I don't think I've ever seen one, so it's incredibly uncommon the kinds of miracles that we're describing. The dead are raised, the blind see, the deaf hear, you know, lopped off ears are instantly healed. Have you ever seen that? Somebody's ear? I mean, just there's a new ear. I mean, the kinds of miracles that Jesus did clearly were unique and set him apart as a unique, uh, you know, as the Son of God. And so, you know, Grudem, I think, wants to uphold the work that we just got done um, in Providence, you can move the tree if you want, slide it over. It doesn't need to be in your face. There you go. All right. Um, you know, we, we want to keep a hold of what we've learned, namely that God is actively, constantly involved in the natural world. He's holding the atoms of the chair together you're sitting on, as we've said. He's, he's passionately and actively involved in every so-called commonplace event. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So everything is a direct activity of God, according to the Scripture. And so then what is a miracle? Well, we still see that there are these signs and wonders in Scripture, and by the reaction of the people there, there was something going on. Well, he ends up with a less common kind of... God's activity. Now let's look at some of the definitions that he rejected and try to describe why he rejected them. Uh, for example, a direct intervention of God in the world. Why would that be rejected? Why would Grudem reject that as a definition? A miracle is a direct intervention of God in the world. He's constantly intervening. All right, that's exact, exactly. Or another definition similar would be a more direct activity of God in the world. Really, you end up with the same problem. More direct than what? Um, I can't imagine anything more direct than holding atoms together. That's pretty direct. So you can see he's rejecting. Uh, it, it assumes a deistic view of the world in which the world ordinarily runs on its own and God intervenes only occasionally. And that's false. You know, it, it says that he causes his sun to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's pretty intervening, isn't it? And I would think that that causes wonder. Have you ever been away, uh, filled with a sense of wonder and amazement at a sunrise or a sunset? They're really spectacular and beautiful occasionally, and we just praise God and they give us a sense of wonder. But is that a miracle? I don't think so. So we need to end up with a kind of a definition that's different. It's a challenge. So you walked in here thinking, oh, I can define a miracle. Now you realize how hard it is, all right? God, how about this one? God working in the world without using means to bring about the results he wishes. Uh, Grudem rejected this because this would res uh, restrict a miracle to anything God doesn't use means for. You don't, you don't then end up with any miracles in the Bible at all, probably. Moses used a staff to do a lot of his miracles, right? Jesus spat on the ground and made mud out of the, the spit, so that wouldn't be a miracle because he used means to do it. So he rejects that definition. This might be a little more common, an exception to natural law or uh, God acting contrary to the laws of nature. I guess if I asked you to give me a definition of a miracle, you might come up with something like that. God kind of acting contrary to the laws of nature. What's the problem with that definition? 
don't read a sheet. I mean, we'll get there in a second. But you know, what would be the problem with God acting contrary to the laws of nature? Himself, because what what is a law of nature? I mean, what does that mean? A law of nature. Okay, well, that would be a logical law, the law of non-contradiction. Something can't be both A and not A at the same time, something like that. Scientists... Okay, that would, I mean, certainly would cause wonder and awe and a great deal of consternation, you know. Uh, So there is a certain regularity to the way God chooses to work with the physical world. Wouldn't you say that? And on the basis of that, I would say, almost extreme regularity, we can speak of almost scientific laws. You see what I'm talking about? God does seem to act with this extreme regularity so that scientists can study things in a laboratory and then assume that they will continue to be true forever. Now, they can go too far with that, as we saw with evolution. Yes, go ahead. But, but he does act contrary, technically speaking, like the sun not rising. So how can he not come himself like when the one king prayed that his life be extended? God stopped coming. You mean with the, su- the yeah. sunlight that went down the stairs? We're going to yeah. talk about that in a, in a, in a minute. I mean, God... God can do what he wants with the sun. I mean, he can cause it to rise or not. And he does interfere with Joshua in the day of that battle when uh, the sun just stood still in the heavens uh, for a long period of time. So, you know, yeah, but, but the, the, still the basis is a regularity. We are used to seeing the sun rising, the sun setting. I didn't realize this, but I, you know, I learned uh, that every place on earth has the same number of hours of sunlight per year. Did you realize that? I didn't know that. I guess it makes sense, though. Everywhere on earth gets the same number of, of hours of sunlight. It's just the North Pole gets them all at once. And then, you know, none for the next six months. Whereas at the equator, they get 12 hours a day. It's really evenly distributed, but it's the same amount. There's an intense regularity to this, and we're used to it, aren't we? Uh, you know, all the way to the so-called law of gravity or, or anything. We're used to things falling, not rising. And on the basis of that, we do science. On the basis of that, people in the Research Triangle Park assume that the that findings they made three years ago will still be true today, as long as the experiment's done the same way. And so that's what I call the kind of extreme regularity of the way God chooses to work in things. But Grudem broke this, de- I mean, rejected this definition because it said it implies that the physical universe has certain intrinsic qualities built into their being, and this is the key, independent of God, you see? It's kind of like they're based on stuff and even God has to kind of stand off and say, well, there's that stuff and it's got a law and I've got to interfere and break it. No, the stuff has that law because God says so moment by moment. And he will continue to say so because that seems to be his nature. But the fact of the matter is that uh, God continues to uphold these laws moment by moment. And so he rejected this, these definitions. There's some other definitions that weren't in Grudem's textbook, but I went looking for. Augustine put it this way. A miracle is an event which runs counter to the observed processes of nature. Or also, he said, whatever appears that is difficult or unusual above the hope and power of them who wonder. All right, Thomas Aquinas said, the more it exceeds nature's capacity, the greater any miracle is said to be. That's an odd definition. And I'm just giving them to you. C.S. Lewis said it's an interference with nature by a supernatural power. Well, you know, Grudem would have rejected that definition, but C.S. Lewis gave it to us, so I figured I'd put it on there. Um, Interference with nature. John Wimber said it's an event in which people and things are visibly and beneficially affected by God's power working through an individual. So he focuses on a miracle worker at that point, somebody who's going to work the miracle. And then I already gave you this, or actually the next one I'd given you, Colin Brown says the word miracle uh, derives from the Latin miraculum, which is a wonder or a wonderful thing, and draws attention to the subjective response of wonder on the part of the observer, rather than speculation about whether the event breaks the laws of nature. So here it's totally focusing on the audience. I mean, you know, it's like that philosophical question if a, you know, if a, if a tree falls in the middle of a forest and there's no one to hear it, is there any sound? Well, we, one could ask, if some wonder of God happens in the middle of nowhere and there's no one, no sentient being to observe it, is it really a miracle? So it seems not. It seems that there's always a connection to wonder and awe and amazement on the part of human beings, that the purpose of a miracle is to engender these kind of responses that we are supposed to be motivated to worship. We're supposed to be captivated in awe. 
There's a sense of the majesty of God, or else it isn't a miracle. You wouldn't think that that uh, you know that 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 a miracle was done if there's nobody to observe it. And and it seems in every case there's this connection to reaction. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and, and and he does get into this that he actually talks about the prayer of faith, and then and the man walks away. Um, you know, we could even pray that this medication would do its work, and and all that. It's, it really becomes hard, and you can see why miracle immediately follows a chapter on providence, because it's so hard to know where the one ends and the other picks up. But I think there's you notice how many of these definitions come back to a regular pattern of nature, and I think that this ends up being pretty important. Um, I'm zeroing in on how uncommon is this less common action of God. It's actually very uncommon, or else it isn't a miracle. And and that's kind of what I'm getting at. But it's a very good point, Steve. You're bringing up a very good point. Uh, we already quoted this New Bible dictionary, dictionary definition. Three key aspects. A sense of wonder, a display of power, and some kind of significance attached to the action. I think it's a good definition, although I, I, we've already shown that it doesn't escape the problem of providence. But still, there is, with every miracle, every sign that Jesus did, it really is a, uh, there's a sense of wonder. The crowd is amazed at what he does. There's a display of, of supernatural power. And the word supernatural itself assumes a kind of pattern of God's normal behaving, a so-called law of nature, although we hesitate to call it that. Supernatural means above what we would ordinarily expect. So I started doing some research on this, and these are some of my comments. I find that there actually is in Scripture a sense of not so much a law of nature, but what is ordinarily expected in a situation. And a sign or wonder is done with that as a backdrop. For example, clear, clearest example I could find was number 16. Now, you remember the story about Korah's rebellion, Dathan, Korah, and Abiram. These guys get a bunch of, of rebels together to speak against Moses' authority. You remember that? And it's just one of the many low moments for Israel yeah, as they're wandering around. And, and it's just a very, very bad moment. And Moses says this in number 16, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. So stop there. He said, look, I was just tending my father-in-law's sheep on the backside of the desert. And then suddenly I saw a burning bush and all of this has come from God. This is not me. God has called me to do this. And now this is how you will know that God sent me to do this. Look at verse 29. If these men die a natural death and experience only what happens, usually happens to men. Do you notice that expression? If these men die the way men die, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, I underline that as well. Do you see that? There's a contrast here. People have seen the way people regularly usually die. But what's about to happen is something highly unusual. And Moses actually names it ahead of time. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. Let me ask you a question. If you've been standing there that day, would you have called that a miracle? I would say so. Now, there's two aspects to the miracle. I'm going to talk more about the second in a moment. But the two aspects are, number one, it's against the backdrop of the way that people usually die. That is actually highly unusual. For the ground to open up and swallow the men alive, and, and not just any men, but men that have been fomenting rebellion against the Lord and against His servant and, and all that. So there's this context of contest. And people, you know, there, there's this, it's like the shootout at the OK Corral. So that you may know that the Lord sent me, this kind of thing. Then the second aspect is the timing of it. You see, I was in Japan, and I have pictures of me standing in a crevice in Kobe, Japan, that was 10 feet deep. 
It was really pretty foolish to do because they were still having aftershocks and tremors at that point. And, uh, but there's a photo of me, and I've got one of my little kids. I think it was Nathaniel, and we're holding it, and Chris has got the photo. What was I thinking? But, of course, it had been like um, about uh, two or three months later. I didn't go the next day or anything. Um, so we've been told that that crack had pretty much been in that shape for the last three months, so it's probably okay. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to s step down into an earthquake-caused crack, so I did. Um, now, if the earth had swallowed me alive at that point, it would not have been called a miracle, just foolishness on my part. And I probably would have made the Baptist press, and uh, it would have been a sermon illustration, I think. But it would not have been a miracle. You know, it would not have been a miracle. And actually, it's possible that some Japanese people did sink into the ground that night. I don't know. We don't have any record of it. But 5,000 people perished in that earthquake, most of them from fire. Okay, the miracle then isn't just the swallowing up of the men alive, but it was the timing of it. Do you see that? It was, it was that as soon as he finished saying, he named it ahead of time, and as soon as he finished saying, it happened. And this is going to actually be a recurring theme with some of these miracles. It's a sense of wonder and amazement and timing of a somewhat natural event. But Moses underscores the fact that, the fact that this is not the way men ordinarily die. Therefore, it's a miracle. Okay, and the next one is in 2 Kings 20. Uh, this was already brought up uh, a few moments ago. Um, this is Isaiah the prophet going to King Hezekiah. He goes to King Hezekiah and says, put your affairs in order, you're going to die. It's good to have a prophet around to tell you. You know, I mean, we don't usually have a direct knowledge of when we're going to die. And good thing, too. How would you like to have a clock on the wall that shows you how much time you have left? You know? <laughs> I mean, that'd be a tough way to live your life. Conversely, it might make you presumptuous and say, I've got another 40 years to live or whatever. But either way, we don't know the day of our death. But Isaiah came and confronted Hezekiah and said, put your affairs in order. You're going to die. You will not recover. So he's sick. He's got a disease. Well, Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and cries and prays and says, Lord, remember how I've acted faithfully and served you with wholehearted devotion. And uh, God hears his prayer and tells Isaiah to go back and tell him that the Lord has added 10 years to his life. Well, Hezekiah wants a sign and the Lord wants him to give, he wants Isaiah to give him a sign. So Isaiah answered, this is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or shall it go back 10 steps? Now, Hezekiah answers, it is a simple matter for the shadow to go forward 10 steps, said Hezekiah. Rather have it go backward 10 steps. Now, what does he mean when he says it's a simple matter for the shadow to go ahead on the stairway that he has? That's a normal occurrence. He's seen it before, probably every evening, right? So you see the backdrop of this miracle is the ordinary way that things happen, right? This time, the shadow went backward down the stairs, and that's a miracle. You see what I'm saying? Because of the habit of the shadow, the sunset, and how the geometry of the building was, um, it made it a miracle. So the backdrop of the miracle was the ordinary way that things happen. Another example, of course, I've already alluded to is Joshua 10. As they were fighting uh, the uh, Amorites, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley, valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as, is written, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. Verse 14, there has never been a day like it before or since. Stop there. Again, a statement of what is commonly expected. This is unusual for the sun to stop and stand still in the sky. Now, I've experienced some days like that. You know, when you think it's got to be lunch by now, and it isn't, okay? But there's something more going on here. Everybody acknowledged that something unusual had happened that day. The sun just wasn't moving. I mean, usually you're not able to kill 23,000 guys and the sun's still in the same position as when you began the battle. You know, so that takes time and there's a sense of how long it should have taken and there's the sun still standing high in the sky. And so clearly something unusual has happened. It was a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Okay, these are three examples and perhaps you could find some others, but these are the, some of the clearest I could find from the Old Testament. Again, the backdrop is the way that God ordinarily does things and the miracles set like a diamond against that backdrop. It's something unusual. Okay, so we learned in Providence that it is God that causes the sun to rise and the sun, the sun to set. It is God that opens up the ground or doesn't. It is God that holds the ground firm under your feet as you walk. So it doesn't f fall away under you. 
All right? God choosing to act contrary to his ordinary purposes, his ordinary design, in those three cases was called a miracle. You see that? Secondly, the concept of a scientific approach is coupled, coupled with a sign that's seen in Gideon's fleece. This is actually a very interesting thing. We're going to couple the modern scientific approach with a sense of God's action so that Gideon will finally get moving and do what God wants him to do. You remember this story. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. But he's not done, is he? All right, verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, do, do not be angry with me even though I just lied to you because uh, I said if you do this one thing, then I'll know. But he said, please don't be angry, but let me make just one more request. Allow one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Then he was convinced. Why was he convinced? Well, understand the scientific method. Something happens a certain way. We expect it to happen that way every time. You see, if you set up the experiment the same way, it's going to happen the same way again. It is on the basis of this concept that the whole scientific uh, endeavor is done. We don't expect a direct opposite effect the next day. And if we think so, as scientific people, we're going to say there were some other criteria that changed. We wouldn't say, it's a miracle. It's, we'd say, he's a bad scientist. You know, There were some impurities in the test tube. Something happened. Okay, But here... He knew that there could really be no other explanation except that God directly did something contradictory to what he'd done the day before. See what I'm saying? So again, it's the backdrop of what is ordinarily expected, only this time we didn't know it was expected. We're just going to do the fleece opposite ways both times and then we'll see the hand of the Lord. All right. Sometimes a miracle is an ordinary event coupled with significant circumstances, as we just mentioned. Timing in this case is everything. Would it be a miracle, for example, for a pigeon to fly through this room? It would be distracting, but would it be a miracle? If I said, I predict that within the next 10 seconds, a pigeon will fly through the room, would that be a miracle? Well, it would be one of two things. Either it's a miracle or I have contrived to give an example and there's somebody outside that window waiting to release the pigeon. All right. But the fact of the matter is, there's a, a matter of the statement and then the occurrence. And this happens again and again. For example, with storms. Storms are... Um, are not usually considered miraculous. Although we do see that they are considered to be the hand of the Lord, that God does storms. He brings the snow or the rain or the wind and God controls these things. Psalm uh, 18, I think, talks about the voice of the Lord twists the oaks and, and everything cries glory. I don't know Psalm 18, but it's one of the Psalms. And so the voice of the Lord is mighty, the voice of the Lord is powerful and it twists the oaks. All right, well, there's a rhythm in that Psalm and, and we're almost, almost like the psalmist was watching a storm while he wrote the psalm. Okay, so a biblical worldview says that God brings all storms, but not every storm is a miracle. Some storms, however, were considered miracles because of the timing. Remember that storm that came in 1 Samuel 12 after Israel had asked for a king? Remember that? Oh Lord, send us a king so that we can have somebody to go out and fight our battles for us and we can be like all the other nations. We want to be just like all the other pagan nations. Well, this is not a good request. God had already predicted that they would have a king in Deuteronomy, and so the, the request itself was not the problem. It was the motive. It was the sense behind it that they wanted to be like everybody else. So give us a king. So then he says, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes so that you will know what an evil thing it is that you have done in asking in this way for a king. All right, is it not wheat harvest now? I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called upon the Lord and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. And I think I would too. If, if Again, the setting. There's this intense you know, issue between Samuel the prophet and the judge, uh, the final judge and they're asking for a king and he says it's the wrong thing and, and all this and there's this give and take and he's going to give them a king and he says but so you may know that the Lord is so displeased stand and see what God will do and he prays to the Lord for a storm and it happens well that, there's a sense of wonder and awe that comes clearly it's considered to be a miracle also we get the same thing in uh, the uh, Elijah's contest with the prophets of Baal at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. My sense is that perhaps it was lightning or something, but it just says the fire of the Lord fell. But again, you have to understand the timing. It's got to do with timing. Elijah uh, had been watching and mocking the prophets of Baal as they had tried to make fire fall from heaven and nothing had happened and it just goes on and on and finally he says, are you, are you through yet? And they give up. There's nothing more that they can do. And then he, he just soaks the sacrifice with water. Why does he do that? Why does he say, pour water, pour more water, do it again? Why does he do that? To, to make it less common. Because water and fire don't mix. I mean, wet wood doesn't burn. So what is he doing? He's establishing a, a scientific principle before them so that the miracle can be you know, escalated. Remember that, that uh, definition that we saw, uh, Thomas Aquinas. The more it exceeds nature's capacity, the greater a miracle is said to be. So for a fire to fall down on dry wood and burn it up would be a miracle. But it's a greater miracle when it's soaking, dripping wet, and the stones themselves are evaporated. You see what I'm saying? Everything has its burning point, you know that. Any material thing can be turned into gas if the temperature's high, high enough, hot enough. But it's the timing. He said, oh Lord, and just prays a simple prayer. They're ranting and raving and cutting themselves and dancing for hours. He just says, Lord, I pray you do this, and boom, it happens. And there, what was the effect on the people? They knew that the Lord had done it. There was no question that God had acted. Again, it's a miracle. And then there's Jesus. In Mark 4:39 through 41, he got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now, it's, it's interesting. There's nothing really miraculous about the ending of a storm. Because apparently every storm that's been in the Durham area has ended at some point. It's not storming right now. So there's nothing that unusual about a storm ending, okay? Even that ice storm ended at some point once all the trees were destroyed. I mean, it was gone. But every storm has its ending point. There's nothing miraculous about storm ending. But there is something miraculous about a man standing up and speaking to the wind and the waves, saying, peace be still, and it's done. And it's like glassy smooth after that. Now that is a miracle. And the men in the boat knew it, didn't they? They said, who is this? Actually, they were more afraid of Jesus than they'd been of the storm. And they thought they were going to drown in the storm. I would have been too. I mean, there's that, that's scary. To be in a boat with a man who can speak to the wind and have it do what he says. So again, it's timing. It's not the thing itself. It's the combination of Jesus' words, who he is, already he's done some signs and wonders, and who he's claiming to be, and stands up and says, peace be still, and it stops. Now, I don't think any one of you in this room could speak to the wind and have it obey. It's going to keep doing what it does. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you can't tell where it comes from, where it's going. So go out and speak to the wind. Try it, and you'll see that you are not the Son of God. But Jesus can do these things. In all three cases, an ordinary thing, the coming of a storm, the fire of the Lord is lightning, or the ending of it is coupled with direct action, usually spoken words, resulting in a stunning and amazing set of circumstances sufficient to create awe and wonder. Timing is also the issue in this particular healing from Christ. This is in John chapter 4. There was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Now that's a very important statement that Jesus makes. The first time I read that and, and when I was memorizing and working it through, I thought he's kind of sighing about it. Unless you people see miracles, you'll never believe. What is the matter with you? But I don't think that's his attitude here. Because later he says in John, he says, believe on the basis of the miracles that I've done. Believe on the basis of the signs. The works that I've done are sufficient for you. Now that's a sense. So he's saying, unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. So there's a reason why I'm about to do what I'm going to do. So that you may believe. You see the connection. That's what he's doing. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. 
Now this is interesting. It's similar to the miracle that he did for the centurion's son or, or slave. The centurion comes and, and says, Lord, come. And he gets up and begins to go. And he says, you don't need to come, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. And, and, and Jesus says, fine. This time, that interchange doesn't happen. Jesus just doesn't even go. He just gives the word. He says, go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. Now, here's the key, verse 52. When he inquired as to the time his son got, when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. Do you see the word so there? Well, what is it that convinced this man that Jesus had healed him? The timing. It wasn't just the healing. It was the healing conjunction with Jesus' statement, go, your son will live. And so, therefore, the miracle that God had ordained to do through his son at that point had to include when the son got better. Suppose the son had gotten better two hours before Jesus had said, your son will live. I don't think the man it would, it wouldn't have had the same impact. Suppose he gets back and he's still sick, but two months later, he eventually got better. Even if God did it, it still wouldn't have been a miracle. You see what I'm saying? It had to be instantaneous and connected with the word Jesus had spoken. At that moment, he was healed. And therefore, it was a miracle. Do you see that? That's what makes it uh, a sign. Now, there are biblical terminologies for miracles, signs, wonders, and miracles are mighty works. You can read these. Let's keep, keep going. Page 5. The central Old Testament miracle is really the Exodus. And it isn't just one miracle. It's many miracles, isn't it? I mean, how many different wonders does, does God do at the time of the Exodus? Think about it. A lot, yeah. All right, you got the plagues, the ten. Okay, you got the plagues, you got the burning bush. Burning bush. That's 11. You've got uh, the uh, Red Sea, that's 12. You've got manna. Yeah. Manna. Manna, that's 13. And, and, and just when he called Moses, what did he do? Remember, Moses didn't want to go? He said, who am I that I should go speak to Pharaoh? Remember? He had the staff. What did he tell him to do with the staff? Throw it on the ground, it became a snake. Grab it by the tail, it turns back into a staff again. Put your hand into your garment, and his hand turned leprous. Put it back in, and it'll be healed again. Well, these things had not been done in the book of Genesis. You look through in the book of Genesis, these kinds of signs were not done. There were visions. There, the Lord spoke. There were, there were visions. They would have a vision of the angels ascending and descending on a ladder, remember? Or different other things would happen. But we don't have these kinds of miracles. These were done for the first time through Moses. These kinds of signs. And so there's all kinds of um, signs surrounding the Exodus. central miracle of the Old Testament really is the Exodus. In Exodus 3.20, God says, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. So he's intending to do miracles. He's intending to do signs and wonders to convince Pharaoh. The miracles first have to convince Moses, as we just mentioned, the staff into a serpent, the leprous hand, etc. Then he's got to do miracles to convince and judge Pharaoh, the plagues and the Passover. Exodus 10.14, for example. Locusts invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. Do you notice something we've already discussed there? Never before. Isn't that God's ordinary way of doing things? Had there been a locust plague before? Probably. But not like that. Had there been hail before? Yes, but not like that. Had there been darkness before? Yes, but not like that. Okay? So again, it's against the backdrop of the way that they were used to experiencing things. All right? And then there's the miracle to deliver Israel at the Red Sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea uh, were covered. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Do you realize that the liberals have to, do, have to completely deny Scripture in order to pull their... I mean... How do you how do you end with a wall of water in a, in a marsh? I mean, that must be a really low wall. Or he'd created a trough or something. I don't understand. And it really frustrates me when people do that to the Scriptures. Let's just take them as they were written. I mean, let's face it. There's not a single commentator on the face of the earth today that was there. But Moses was there. So why wouldn't we take his word for it? <laughs> he said it was like a wall on the left and the right towered over us and then it crashed down and they sank like a stone. All right, take your word for it. I, you were there, I wasn't. And so there it is. So the water flowed back and, the, and uh, Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore 
And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord had displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses' servant. Again, a recurring theme with miracle stories is the people's response, their sense of wonder, their sense of awe, and the fact that they went on and put their trust in the Lord and they believed in Jesus, that, that he was who he claimed to be. There's a sense of response to the miracle. That was the purpose of the miracle, that it would create and engender faith in the people. So then we have, as was mentioned by some of you, miracles that sustained Israel in the desert, manna from heaven and water from a, from a rock and quail also, which wasn't mentioned. The miracles to bring Israel into the promised land, the Jordan dried up, uh, the walls of Jericho fell when the people just marched around them. And then seventh, we have miracles of prophetic power and judgment. Elijah and Elisha, for example, already mentioned uh, the droughted Elijah's voice for three and a half years, supernatural feeding by a raven, the widow's flour and oil never running out, widow's son raised from the dead, the contest with the prophets of Baal, the rain restored as a result of Elijah, Elijah's fervent prayer, fire consumes Ahaziah's, Ahaziah's men twice. That's one of the... You remember in Second Kings, they go to arrest Elijah and the captain comes with 50 men, says, man of God, come down off that mountain and boom, fire comes down. First time it hit the sacrifice. You remember that up on Mount Carmel. Hit the sacrifice. God aims very well. I mean, he didn't miss. So it went down, doesn't hit a single person, just hits the sacrifice, and that's all. A bunch of idolaters, a bunch of Baal worshippers. Even the prophets of Baal weren't struck by the fire of God. God aimed perfectly with laser accuracy. Boom. But this time, he consumes 50 men plus the captain that went to arrest Elijah. He didn't miss that time either. The second captain goes with 50 more men. Get down there off that mountain. Boom. Same thing. Okay, bad, bad approach. I, and the third one, learning from the past, says, you know, he's crawling on his belly. Oh, man of God, have mercy on me. And, and you, know, you know, I'm coming in fear and trepidation for my life. And please don't do anything mean to me. You know, and, and the Lord says, go with him. You know, and he goes. And I mean, that, that's a miracle. You know, the fire of God coming down and consuming these men. And teaching humility, which is a good thing crossing the Jordan River. You remember what happened? When he crosses the Jordan River before the chariot of fire is about to take him up, he and Elisha cross the river and he takes his cloak, remember the mantle, and he smacks the river with it and he crosses on dry ground across. And, uh, you know, Elisha, you know, Elijah asks Elisha, do you have a request for me? He says, yes, grant that I might have a double share of your power. And he says, well, what you've asked is a difficult thing, but if you see me when I go, you'll have it. If not, you won't. And so he, uh, the chariot of fire comes down and whoosh, he goes up to heaven and the mantle is left there lying on the ground and Elisha saw the whole thing. And so he had received a double portion. And so we speak in this way that Elijah's mantle fell then on Elisha. The, the mantle is like a transfer of power, really. And so what's the first display of this? Remember, he takes the same cloak that Elijah had used just moments before and smacks the Jordan River and he says, where now is the God of Elijah? And boom, he crosses on dry ground. All right? So the power to do miracles, really, had transferred over to Elisha. And I think by some count, he did more miracles than Elijah did. He did more miracles. And so there's this sense of the power of God. Elisha, you remember, purifies water, uh, you know, bitter water. Uh, remember the bear came? The, 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 the youth of the neighborhood were saying, go on up, you old bald head. And... Uh, and then a bear came and mauled them. All right, again, that's a miracle. It's timing is everything, you know. Uh, a bear mauling a bunch of teenagers is a tragedy. But a bear munching, munching, yeah, uh, a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of teenagers that had made fun of the prophet of God. Now that's a miracle. You see, that's the way. That's the way it works. And Daniel, of course, miracles were done there. Daniel, the miracle of supernatural knowledge. You remember that? Remember how Nebuchadnezzar had a test for his wise men, all the Chaldeans, all these guys. What was the test? Tell me my dream, and then I will know that you can interpret it. Well, that's a test. And Dan, you know, the, 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 uh, all the conjurers and the you know, Chaldeans said, no one can do what the king asks. I don't care how powerful you are. You're asking us to read your mind from the night before? I have no idea what's your dream. You tell us the dream, and we're good at interpreting it. This is what we specialize in. He said, no, no. You tell me my dream, then I'll know you have power to do it. Daniel did it. Now, that's incredible. That's a miracle. Nobody can do that. Nobody can read minds. Only God can do that. And that's what Daniel said. Only God can do what the king asks. And so was there not a sense of wonder and amazement at that point? And uh, Daniel was held in high honor. 
All right. Now, miracles are characteristics of the New Covenant age, however. If there were miracles in the Old Testament, there was a river of miracles around Jesus and the apostles. I mean, you can't even compare. Far more miracles done by Jesus than anybody that's ever lived. Miracles are central to Christ's mission. Christ entered the world through a miracle, didn't he? How did he enter the world? Virgin birth. That's a miracle. Incarnation is a miracle. A virgin birth. A central miracle of the New Testament is that God became man. The resurrection is the completing miracle of the New Testament. The atonement was accepted. The new creation was inaugurated. Jesus had a body that would never die. A new creation body that would live forever. Able to go through walls. Remember, the doors were locked for fear of the Jews and Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. How did he do that? How did he go through walls? I don't have any idea. I don't know how Jesus can have a body and be omnipresent. Can anyone explain that to me? How do you have a body and be omnipresent? Somebody tell me. I've never even figured figure that out. But the fact of the matter is Jesus clearly still has a resurrection body. His body lives. He is alive forever. He will never die again. And yet he's omnipresent. And surely I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. You see that? I can't explain that, but I do know that it happened. These are miracles. Now, miracles are attested to Christ's person and nature. Nicodemus came uh, at night in John 3. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, that's not literally true, is it? Did they know that Jesus was a teacher who had come from God? No. As a matter of fact, they concluded that Jesus had supernatural power, but he got it from who? From Beelzebub. And that ends up being probably the, what Jesus says, the unpardonable sin. For them to look at his miracles and ascribe it to the power of the devil, he said, what can I do for you? I've shown you all of my power, all of my miracles, and you ascribe it exactly 180 degrees the wrong way. I tell you, this sin will never be forgiven, either now or in the age to come. Never. It's an un- unforgivable sin. We're going to talk more about that as I preach through Luke tw- I mean, uh, Matthew 12, but <clears throat> the fact is that Jesus did these miracles, and to Nicodemus at least, it convinced him that he was a teacher who had come from God. In Acts 2.22, it says, Men of Israel, listen to this. <clears throat> Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. What does that mean, accredited to God, accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs? What's that word, accredit? When you think of accreditation, what does that mean? A stamp of approval. If we opened up a a university here, the University of First Baptist Church, come and get a, we offer a PhD in uh, basket weaving. Um, Is that going to hold much weight? No, because it's not what? It's not accredited. There are independent agencies that go around to institutions of higher learning and they give them accreditation or not. You understand this process. It has to do with validating the credentials. How were Jesus' credentials as a son of God validated according to Peter at the day of Pentecost? How did Peter say that he was accredited by God? His miracles, signs and wonders. And not just a few, but many, many. They were, they were they accredited Jesus. They demonstrated that he was the Son of God. They promoted and were a basis for faith in Christ. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. Turn the page. John 2.11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Canaan, Galilee. Uh, which one was that? Turning water into wine. That's right. Yeah, um... You know, one could argue that God turns water into wine all the time. It just, you know, takes a long time. I mean, a really long time. As a matter of fact, the better the wine, the longer it takes, right? But, I mean, the rain comes down. It gets sucked up into the root system of the vines, and and it just takes a long time. Jesus just shortened the process and apparently made very fine wine, which meant it tasted as though it were very aged. So he just really accelerated the process. But that was, according to John, the first of Jesus' miraculous signs. I guess that would be other than his birth, which was a significant sign in and of itself. But uh, at any rate, the first one that he did uh, as a display of his power, Jesus performed at Canaan, Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Do you see the connection there between the miracle and the belief? That was the purpose of the miracle. See what I can do, believe in me and trust in me for the salvation of your soul. That's how it worked. 
John 14.11, Jesus says it directly. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Therefore, it is not a wrong thing to say I believe in Jesus because of the miracles that he did. That's why they were given. John 14.11 says so. Jesus said, believe in me on the basis of the evidence that you've seen, the miracles. That's what he says. And then John 20, very important. If, you, if, you, if you're not careful, you know, you miss details sometimes. But look at John 20. Somebody read this for me. Uh, 30, and, uh, 30 and 31, page 7 there. Okay, so this is really kind of a purpose statement for the whole Gospel of John. Okay? What is the purpose? What is John hoping that you'll get out of his Gospel? He wants you to believe. What does he want you to believe? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, really. Um, just the very way that Thomas had just expressed that kind of faith. When Thomas saw his resurrection, he said to him what? What, what was his confession? My Lord and my God, Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So John wants you to believe that Jesus is God. So what did he write down in order to get you to do that? These. These what, though? You have to read it in context. Jesus did many other miraculous signs which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. These what? These miraculous signs. And we've noted that there are seven miracles that he focuses on. The greatest of the miracles, of course, is Jesus' resurrection, his physical resurrection. And so he's really linking your faith to the display of his miraculous power as recorded in the Gospel of John. Based on those seven signs plus his resurrection, you should have enough to go on. It's enough. Do you remember what they were, the seven signs? Come on, some of you are in my Bible study. Don't worry, we'll do that another time. What were the seven signs in John's Gospel? Think about it another time. Now, Seeing a miracle, however, did not guarantee that you would be saved. Isn't that interesting? Some people would see and believe. Other people would see and question and quibble and reject. Right? John 12:37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Isn't that amazing? They watched the miracles. They remember probably the greatest miracle that Jesus did, other than his own resurrection, was what in John's gospel? Lazarus's resurrection. I, that is a stunning miracle. He'd been in the tomb for four days and it really is very much played up for effect. I mean, it's very, very dramatic. There's a lot of mourners there. Jesus goes down and stands in front of the tomb and says, roll back the stone and they argue with him that there's going to be a bad odor. And he calls out in a loud voice after praying. He says, Lazarus, come forth. It's, a, it's a, an amazing moment. And I remember trying, I love to use the miracles in my sharing of the gospel to just recount the story to an unbeliever and say, what would you have felt if you had been there? So I actually did that once. I was sharing the gospel with a guy, kind of a tough guy. I remember, he's kind of an intimidating guy, but you know, he had a soul and I wanted him to know the Lord. And, and so I was sharing. I said, now what, what would you have done if you'd been standing there and Lazarus came out, dead for four days, came out with grave clothes on and Jesus says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. He said, I'd be running and screaming the other way. Well, at least he saw the sense of the power of Christ, the wonder, the amazement. Did some people believe in Jesus because of Lazarus? Oh yeah, many. Lazarus's personal testimony, as you imagine, was quite powerful. Quite powerful. Think of all the churches he could give a testimony in these days if he were still alive. Going around, well, I have a story to tell. I mean, that's an amazing thing. As a matter of fact, it was so effective that... Uh, the Pharisees wanted to kill him. Not only Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus. Now, why did they want to kill him? It proves what, though, about their hearts? They're not persuaded. They don't believe. Oh, i got another guy to kill now. Not just Jesus, we have to kill Lazarus. And, and that shows how a miracle did not guarantee saving faith. Just because you saw the evidences of a miracle, it didn't mean. You remember John 9, when Jesus heals the man born blind. Remember what the Pharisees asked him and his parents? Is this the one you say was born blind? I mean, how ridiculous is that? 
You've been faking it all these years. Blindness gives you no advantages in life. There's no advantage to being blind. There's no motive. There was no insurance company paying out on that one. Nothing was coming. You said he was born blind, and he's an adult by now. All the neighbors knew that he was blind. So they're, they're trying to find a way around the clear display of miraculous power. They're not believing. Yes? I have a great scripture. Um, yeah. When they said this, it says, then they, it's in John chapter 11, 47, when they gathered the chief priests and Pharisees of the council and said, what do we for this man do with many miracles? If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him and take the Roman, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and that nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It, really an amazing statement. If we let him keep going like this, I mean, there's, there's like six different ways you could look at this statement. If we let him, you know, <laughs> you know, it's really an amazing thing. Who do you think he is? Do you really think you had the power to stop him? Well, they really thought they did. And I think they thought they succeeded when they killed him. All right, if we let him go on like this, the Romans will come. Well, some people, some zealots, thought, bring the Romans on. Anybody who can raise somebody from the dead can conquer the Romans. Anybody who can speak to the wind and the waves and obeys him. So they still had him lower than he, his power really, truly deserved. Just the heart of unbelief. Do you see that? Heart of unbelief. So what I'm saying is just because you saw miracles didn't mean for sure that you'd be saved. Remember in John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who had been paralyzed for many years. Remember? He was near a pool and if you got in the pool first, you'd be healed, but he couldn't move. I think it's a picture of man in his natural state. He can't, do, he can't do nothing. He's just laying there. Even right next to the pool of saving healing, he can't move. So Jesus says, don't worry about the pool. Just get up and take your mat and go home. But he didn't even know who it was. He didn't know his name. Jesus had healed him and he didn't even know who he was. That shows and disproves you don't have to have faith to be healed. Do you see that? Some people say without faith, Jesus could do nothing. That is so false. Jesus healed this man and he didn't even know who Jesus was. He had no faith. You know, and, and Jesus comes later. You remember, the Pharisees confront him because he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. He's a mat carrier. <laughs> he's a mat carrier. And he saw him and he said, uh, who told you you could... He said, the man who healed me told me I could take the mat and go home. Who's I to argue? He said, who healed you? He said, I don't know. <laughs> Jesus goes... Jesus goes and finds him later. Do you remember what he said? See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. What is Jesus referring to there? Hell. I mean, it must be. What could be worse than 40 years of paralysis? Hell. Dying and going to hell is worse. And so he warns him, stop sinning. And what did the man do after Jesus said that? He went off and told the Pharisees who it was. That's a big moment in John's Gospel. Anybody who's a friend of the Pharisees is no friend of Jesus in John's Gospel. So it's a very scary moment for that man. I don't know whether he ever repented, but it sure doesn't look good for him. He went off and betrayed Jesus, in effect. And then you know, they come and confront Jesus because he was healing on the Sabbath. All right? So just because Jesus healed you didn't mean you would be saved. We're going to get to that again in Matthew 12 when Jesus says when an evil spirit comes out of a man, goes to arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it goes back to the place that it left and finds it unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. I've, you know, that sermon, which I'll preach in a few weeks, God willing, is about uh, moral reformation without regeneration. It's about cleaning your life up and you're not born again. Right? And so his life is all cleaned up. He's not born again. And so he's actually, in the end, worse off than he was before Jesus came. So, so miracles do not guarantee faith. Now, after Christ, we have the apostolic age. The miracles were characteristics of apostolic ministry. And uh, I knew it would be a miracle to get through this sheet, um, contrary to an ordinary pattern. <laughs> so, we're only halfway through it. Yes? Yes, Brevard. Yeah, I mean, you hear these stories. I will, I will. I'm going to talk about it in the second half of, of our discussion on miracles, but I believe those stories. I believe that the accounts we get from the mission field are genuine accounts. And it makes you wonder, what's our problem? I mean, have you ever wondered that? Why is it, huh? Our intellect. Our intellect. We put too much faith in pharmaceutical science rather than in God's power. 
Um, you know, we, we will more ascribe the healing to the medicine than we will to God's power. This is just the, this is what's bequeathed us after the uh, Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. We trust more in our science than we do in God. So we didn't talk more about that, but I believe those accounts. I believe these miracles that people are raised from the dead. Uh, I believe them. I think you're really, you're really confronted with a problem if you don't. Because you've got a brother or sister that's standing in front of you saying, I saw it with my own eyes. What are you going to do now? Okay, you're, you're really left with two choices. <laughs> okay, you're a filthy, rotten liar. Or, you know, well, God healed him. You know, those are the two options you have because he said, I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. Now, but you have to interact with folks from other countries in order to do that because most of us have not. My, my church history professor said, I really believe with all my heart that these things go on. I just always seem to be in the other room when they happen. You know? <laughs> so it seems like all of the West, America and all that, we're always in the other room when it's going on. I don't want to be in the other room anymore. Well, anyway, we'll talk about that, God willing, next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your power, your might. We thank you for what you have done. And uh, we thank you for what Jesus said very plainly. Greater works than these will you do because I go to the Father. Uh, This is a mystery to me, but I think I understand it in that we do a far greater volume of work because there's so many more of us. And you're working through us by the power of the Spirit to do the same kinds of works that you did. But Lord, there's never been anyone like you. And you alone stand as the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer, and the miracle worker, the one who does all things. Uh, by the power that the Father gave him. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the central miracle, which is your incarnation and also your resurrection, the Alpha and the Omega of your first uh, physical life here on earth, that we might have eternal life. We thank you for taking on a human body and then shedding blood on the cross and then rising from the dead on the third day. And Lord, we trust in these things. We have not seen and yet we believe. We praise you for that. Thank you for this time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.